This morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. As you're turning there, I'll say, we've been announcing for a couple of weeks, and, and we'll do it one more week, um, that we're going to do a special service next Sunday night for my ordination. I felt very strange every time this has been announced and I've received the email, as though I were throwing my own party. <laughs> um, it's not exactly that. Um, so throughout the fall, there was a number of weddings, there was a start of small groups, there was transitions, there was a lot happening, and not to mention finishing the ordination paper and being uh, examined um, by the, the credentialing committee. Um, in all of that, I forgot that the fine print of the ordination was that you're not actually ordained until you hold the service. So we sort of have to do this. <laughs> um, but I would still like you to come, but I have to do it. Um, but it'll be a sweet time of just sing a few songs. Uh, a hero of mine is going to uh, come preach. Uh, his name is Paulo. And uh, I would love to invite you. So youth group isn't canceled. It's just the ordination service. If you have a small group on Sunday night, don't cancel your small group. Just bring your small group here. I'd love to see it filled. Um, not mainly for my sake, mostly for the sake of the church and enjoying another evening together. Um, as we turn to the book of Acts, I'll say this. Often in life, you have something happen, and then you have something else happen, and then you have something else happen, and, and it's almost like if you examine those events, it's almost indistinguishable what event caused the other, like there, are they one event, or three events, or ten events, and they just kind of flow into each other. That's how the book of Acts is going to be often. As we're preaching through it, we're just going to, is it one story or is it like little stories chopped up within that? This morning especially, that's true. So last week as Ben Bechtel started chapter 3 and preached through all of chapter 3, uh, it was the story of the healing of this man who had been crippled, we'll read in our passage, for 40 years. And as he's healed and starts doing jumping jacks, you know, to the glory of God, um, that causes a commotion. Peter stands up and preaches. And this morning in chapter 4, we're going to look at the fallout from that sermon, both for good and, we might say, for bad, or at least for hard or difficult. So that's where we're headed. Follow along with me as I read from chapter 4, verses 1 to 22, and then we'll pray that the Lord would be our teacher. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And as they were speaking, now the they here is Peter and John, disciples of Jesus, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, that is, kind of they, the religious leaders, set them, Peter and John, in their midst, the midst of all of them, these religious leaders, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you 
and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had, command, excuse me, <clears throat> but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of all the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Well, this is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning as we listen to this story told and explained, I, I pray that you would help us to not just hold it at arm's length or, or worse perhaps even to stand over the story scrutinizing it, but that we would let your word scrutinize us, expose, expose the places where we are yet to find full maturity and contentment in the gospel and help us to give that over to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know how you decide when it's time to take a break from social media. And I don't mean like, oh, the worship service started, like I'll take a, you know, I'll take a break. Um, I mean like, when do you need to take a week or a month or longer, delete the app or delete the accounts even? I, I don't know how you decide that. W one thing that's been helpful for me is, is, is a trigger, is that, is that when I start seeing posts from other people and my first reaction um, is not yes for them, yes for God, yes for the church, yes for justice, yes for whatever the yes is and should be said for. When I start seeing that and my first reaction is why not me? That has been for me a helpful time to say, okay, I need a break. Um, I need a break. Because we look at this passage, there's going to be all sorts of things that are going to be worthy of, of, of mention. But the main thing that keeps circling, either below the surface or sometimes above the surface, is jealousy. 
What we have here in this passage is the story of those who would trade the praise of God for the praise of man, and that's a bad trade. The good news of the passage is that the knowledge of God, who he is and and what he's like and how he loves us, when, when we have the knowledge of God, that knowledge of God gives rise to praise of God that pushes out the lust for the praise of man. To say it very shortly, a love for God that expels the lust for praise of man. That, that, that's the good news that's offered to us in this passage. So let's just go through it. Super plain outline this morning. Read a couple verses, talk about them. Read a couple verses, talk about them. That's, that's all I've got this morning. So let's read a few verses and we'll talk about them. Verse four, or one through four. Go like this. And as they were speaking to the people, again, this is Peter and John speaking to the people after the healing in, near the temple grounds in Jerusalem. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came up to them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So some background here might be helpful. In first century uh, Judaism, you have a, a number of religious groups within Judaism. So you have the Pharisees, which, which sometimes when we hear that, we think of that's just the category for all of the Jewish people. It's not. It was a subset, uh, as well as the Sadducees, and there were two others, um, the Zealots and the Essenes. We don't have as much said about them in the New Testament in part because they were a little more on the fringe, but, but predominantly we hear spoken of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they'll both continue to feature prominently throughout the book of Acts. But here in this passage, we read especially of the Sadducees in verse two. Now, a few things about them. So they, are, they have the majority of what is called the Sanhedrin. It's like the Supreme Court of, of the Jewish people of the day. They have the majority of seats in that Supreme Court. There are 70 seats, they have the majority. They tended to be more wealthy, they were more tied in with the Roman authorities. They were, they were aristocrats of sorts. If we were speaking about them today, we'd probably use the words they were more progressive, more liberal. They took more loose interpretations of scripture. Theologically, we could say they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels and demons. And that, that controversy of believing or not believing in any resurrection actually features in a really prominent way in a story later in the book of Acts. But that's later. Um, But all that to say that when it says in verse 1 that they came upon Peter and John, and then in verse 2 it says they were greatly annoyed, what that means is they were greatly annoyed. Because what you have is Peter and John preaching about a Messiah they crucified and a resurrection they didn't believe in. Read a quote here from Kent Hughes. He's a pastor and, and, and thoughtful uh, Bible teacher and professor even. Uh, As he was working through this passage, he had this to say. It would be difficult to imagine a more priggish, malevolent assembly of men than this group dominated by the Sadducees. Highly sophisticated, twitty blue bloods, that just means from nobility or at least feel like they're from nobility who had come to take care of the Galilean hayseeds. 
referring to Peter and John, hometown, not north of Jerusalem, up in Galilee. You can, you can just hear, even the way Kent Hughes crafted that quote, the disdain that they would have had for Peter and John as nobodies. But they arrest him at the end of the day, and it's quitting time, so they're going to come back tomorrow and the next day, restart again. But in verse 4, we have that detail, don't miss it, 5,000 people get saved. That's a lot. That's a lot. It's important for the details of this passage. So let me read verses 5 through 7 here. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? We'll pick up again in just a second. So they ask, like, how did you do this? And we have the detail there of of, of four individuals. We don't know much, if anything, really about John and Alexander. We know more about Excuse me, <clears throat> Annas and Caiaphas. They're mentioned other places. Uh, so, th- said that they were high priest. Annas, he's actually not the high priest at this time. So, it's sort of like the title president. You, you know, you're, um, President Obama and President Bush are still presidents, even though they're not the current president. That, that's how it was for Annas here. He was, was the high priest from uh, earlier in the first century for about a dozen years. And now his son in law, Caiaphas, is the high priest. And then you get the detail that the whole priestly family is gathered there, or at least other members from the priestly family. So why why does any of that matter? Here, inbred voting block that that is always going to sing in tune. And keep in mind, this is the group of men who ramrodded the case before Pilate and had Jesus crucified just a month and a half earlier. So it's a big deal, and it's a scary group of men who have a lot of power. Let's read verses 8 through 12 to see how Peter and John respond. Here we have Peter's response speaking for the both of them. Verses 8 through 12 go like this. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if Come back to that word in a moment. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone That was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Peter says. It's a bold response, isn't it? Let's talk about that first word in verse 9, if. Right? So he asks the question, how did this happen? And Peter says, if you're asking about this, here's the answer. Like, what, what's going on there? Picture with me for a moment, um, basketball game, it's basketball season, so Ivy League school, so Harvard, Yale, Princeton, something like that, 
basketball team. And they're in a basketball tournament and they're playing a junior college. Don't ask me how Harvard's playing junior college, but they just are. It's my illustration. Um, they're playing and, and Harvard gets trounced, just dominated. The crowd loves it. After the game, there's a press conference. And the head coach of, 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 of Mr. Ivy League school is sitting there at his table, you know, the, the, you know, the logos behind him of the tournament, and he's at the microphone, and he's visibly irate. And he sort of pounds on the table and looks across the way at the, the other coach who just happens to be sitting at another table with another microphone, this junior college coach. And Mr. Ivy League coach says, how did you make all of your free throws? And the junior college coach is like, well, like, if you're asking about how we made all of those free throws, they threw us the ball, and we bent our knees, and we extended the arm. From the side here for you. It's pretty good. I played a little ball. Um, that's how, if you're asking about that, that's how we made those free throws. Like doing that hundreds of times over a decade. I don't think that's what they're asking. I don't think Peter is thinking that's what they're asking. But he answers their question. This Jesus, whom you crucified, God raised. And forgiveness is flowing out. It's a good thing. You should get in on it. And he quotes Psalm 118, which is... You know, I mean, you're, you're speaking to the religious elites. They probably maybe had Psalm 118 memorized, which is a psalm about the rejection of the coming Messiah, that there's going to be those who are going to reject the Messiah, and yet God's going to do something marvelous through him. 30 years later, when Peter writes letters to the local church, First uh, Peter chapter 2, Peter quotes the same psalm. It's in verse 11, the stone the builders rejected becoming the cornerstone. It wouldn't have been lost on them. And then there's this line in verse 12. I, I can't not say anything about that. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. I know we don't really have phone books anymore. <laughs> uh, so my illustration's dated. I think the last one that was sent to the office was maybe four or five years ago. We were just recently sent the Evangelical Free Church, our denomination, the directory of all the churches. And I put it on my bookshelf, and I'll leave it there until they send me next year's, and I'll put next year's on the shelf. I don't, I'll look every church up online that I want to call. But anyway, I have it. But I, picture with me what, what he's saying here with no other name. What Peter is doing, he's, he's saying, like, you collect every phone book from every city there's ever been, and every name that's ever been put in a phone book, and you stack them up, and you look through all of them. There's no name in there who can take away a single sin, except for Christ. Now, that's a beautiful thing to Christians who say, amen. Because it's exclusive, but it's inclusive. Anybody can get in on it. But I think in a pluralistic society like Rome, they would have felt the edge to that, especially as the Sadducees who are tied in there with Rome. Because Rome doesn't care so much if you become a Christian and, and you make Jesus your God. What, what they care about is if you becoming a Christian pushes out all the other gods. You see? Like you could have gods as long as one God that you have doesn't displace the other gods. Just, just have lots of gods and let them all coexist. 
It was a problem then, and it's a problem now. Let's look at verse 13, 14, and 15. What happens next? How do they respond? Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Galilee and hayseeds. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. Uneducated common men, it said. Now, this doesn't mean that Peter and John were unintelligent. In fact, it doesn't even mean that they weren't educated. Peter ran a fishing business in a populated area around the Sea of Galilee. Likely to be a businessman in that day, you knew a couple languages. Hebrew, Aramaic, very similar, but also Greek. He employed fishermen. He did trade with Romans. It's not that he was dumb. What what they're saying is that Peter and John didn't come up through their religious system. They didn't attend the right rabbinic schools. They didn't have that Ivy League education. So here at our church, we we have a number of us, we call us pastor elders. It's kind of trying to see what the Bible says about leadership, spiritual leadership of a church and and who they are and and, and how you go forward. So we have seven, eight of us. it depends on the time of the year and, and people coming, rotating on and off, but only a handful of us have theological education. Now, I have what's called a master in divinity. I don't know if you knew that. A master in divinity. Such a strange title. It's a silly degree name title. I always feel like it's a sorcerer, like a master in divinity. But that's what they call it. I'm a master in divinity. 106 stinking credit hours, by the way. I, kept, I would always drive through, this is a sign, it's not written here. I would drive through St. Louis and I would see the one year MBA and I was like, oh, <laughs> this took me five years. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's, ignore that. But it would be, so only a handful of us, and actually one of them, so Mike Aiken, has more theological education than I do. But three of us, Ben Bechtel, me, and Mike, all have theological edu- advanced theological education. Now, imagine some controversy among us as pastor elders trying to figure it out, get to the bottom of it, and we're sorting things out, we're praying, don't see a way forward. And then the three of us go, well, it's because you haven't been to seminary. If you'd been to seminary like us, then you would know. Like, that's, that's, that, that's, a, that's a way to evade an art. Like, that's, that's not... Engaging in the level of logic and arguments and right and wrong, that's a way to evade all those questions. And that's what they're doing here. But what else do they notice? That they've been with Jesus. Their schooling came from being with him, listening to him teach, listening to him pray, seeing the way he handled difficult people and difficult challenges. And I I will tell you, um, whether our elders have a degrees or not, I tell you, I leave most of our pastor elder meetings Thinking these men have been with Jesus. The way they care for their families, the way they love this church, the way they desire to live honorable lives in their communities and at their workplaces. Would that that would be said of all of us, that we are those who have been with Jesus, and that would be noticeable. 
Well, they're kicked out of the room, Peter and John, because they, they, they don't want their um, naked jealousy exposed. So they kick them out and they have this conversation, verses 16 and 17, and say this. What shall we do with these men? For a, that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Try to silence them. There's that line there about evident. And it, it, it just reminds me of a, of a popular Christian book title, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It was written a number of years ago. It's been republished a few times. It's a book that will hang around in print for a long time. And it's trying to gather all the evidence that they can for the, to give a defense of the Christian faith to help skeptics understand why Christians believe what we believe evidence that demands a verdict and I read this here and 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 you realize through verse 14 it says seen the man the man who was healed and you have in verse 16 that that a sign was performed is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem they say we we cannot deny it this is evidence that demands a verdict and yet what they're doing is that they put their hands over their eyes and their kind of thumbs in their ears and they start going la 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 to drown it out. We're not going to listen. We're not going to listen. We're not going to listen. And they're in a dangerous place. So let's finish it up. 18 through 22. What does Peter say? They call Peter back in. Verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So they charged them not to preach. And what did Peter and John say? We cannot not preach. Like what we've seen, what we've heard, we just have to say it. And, and as you hear that, you realize it, they cannot not do the very thing that the religious leaders were very able to do. They were not able to speak about the very things that they had seen and heard. And then there's the summary verse about all the people praising God for what had happened. So what's, what's this passage about? What should the sermon be about? We've got options, right? A lot going on in this passage. We could talk about the exclusivity of Jesus. No other name by which we must be saved. The truth that troubled the Roman world. The truth that troubles the modern world. We could talk about the spirit of God among the people of God. Right? It says in verse 8 that Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, stood up to preach. Okay, but why was he, like, what does that mean that he was full of the Holy Spirit? I thought in chapter 2, when Jesus went up, the Holy Spirit came down and worked among God's people. Did he, like, did the Spirit leave? Did he have to come back? Or is there, like, when a person becomes a Christian, they get the Spirit, and then in more empowering type ways, the Spirit will show up for specific moments to help us do and live the Christian life. Yes, 
We could talk about that. And if we're talking about the Spirit, wouldn't it be good to talk about what happens in a Spirit-filled person and in a Spirit-filled church? Because did you notice that in a Spirit-filled person, what they spend a lot of time talking about is not the Spirit, but Jesus. Spirit-filled people talk about Jesus a lot. The Holy Spirit's ministry is a floodlight ministry that points away from himself predominantly. We could talk about education. What it means to learn more and more, which is a good thing. Wherever Christians have gone, theological and just general education goes. That's a good thing. But if you don't have a heart submitted to the Lord, you might learn many good things, but you might also just learn creative ways to evade the obvious. There are some things that take a lot of degrees to unlearn what is patently obvious. We could talk about that. We could talk about civil disobedience and what it might mean for us to become confronted with the possibility that there would be scenarios in our life we're going to have to choose. Do we obey God or do we obey government, boss, employer, whatever? Talk about boldness. In fact, all of next week, as we come back, I'll be preaching through the next section. And, and it's all about boldness. They're going to get together. They're going to pray, Lord, help us be bold. But one of the interesting things about boldness, I'll just tell you now, it's not so much this, again, this Christian bravado of just, we're going to be bold, we're going to be bold, we're going to say hard things, we're going to share that post, which is not the most bold thing in the world, right? Um, but, but boldness here, it looks more just like we've seen, we've heard, we can't not say that clearly. That's Christian boldness. We could talk about all of those things, but I think the main thing is jealousy. We can't love the praise of men and the praise of God. And when we trade the praise of men for the praise of God, that's a bad trade. I want to read just a smattering of verses, and I won't even read all the verses as they're on the screen. Just highlight a few words for you as I go back through this passage to show you why I just want to end the sermon talking about this one theme for just a few moments. So, just let your eyes fall through the passage or on the screen or in your Bible. Verse one, we read this. And as they were speaking to the people. And you go into verse two. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people. Go down to verse four. But many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. Going down to verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people. Are they rulers of the people? Are they losing their people? Go down with me to verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. Go down to verse 17. But in order that it might spread no further among the people, they say, Verse 21, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Why? Why can't they punish them? They can do whatever they want. Because of the people. For they were all praising God for what had happened. And this theme of jealousy is going to show up a number of times as we preach through the book of Acts. Showed up in the Gospels as Jesus taught as well. There's this one story, um, it's classic. So they come to Jesus, they ask Jesus a question, and Jesus says, I'll answer your question, but answer my question first. This baptism of John, was it from heaven or from man? So 
sort of a cryptic way to say it, but it basically saying this guy, John the Baptist, who came before Jesus and got everybody ready and was doing good things, was that ministry that John was doing, was it a heavenly ministry or was it just kind of this earthly ministry that he did on his own? And the, 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 the religious leaders go, let us think about it for a moment. And they like huddle. <laughs> and this is what they say. Uh, if we say it came from heaven, Jesus is gonna ask us, why didn't we believe him? And if we say John's ministry came from the people, from man, all the people are going to stone us because they love John. So what do they do? They go back to Jesus and say, we don't know. They know, they just won't answer. They don't like the answer. They're covering their hands, they're plugging their ears, and they're just going to pretend it will go away. It shows up in Acts, it shows up in the Gospels, and it shows up in my own heart because it showed up in the Garden of Eden. The very first lie that Satan whispers is, did God really say? Like, like, did he say? Don't touch every tree. Like, he's given you a lot, but why won't he let you have this one tree? Does he have goodness and he's keeping it behind his back from you? Tempting them to be discontented. Tempting them to believe that Joy could be found in more deeper and satisfying ways apart from the will of God. It's a lie they and all of us have believed. Can you rejoice with those who rejoice when you see their posts on social media? Religious leaders here wed together their religious power, even political power, and ignore what is true for what is expedient and what will keep them in power. And I'm compelled to just ask, broadly as a Christian culture, where are we at on these issues of religion and politics and power? And how do you feel about our current president? See, I'm I'm not going to tell you how to feel, but I do want to ask the provocative question both ways. Namely, If someone presents a thoughtful criticism of our president, could you hear that? Or are you immediately uncomfortable, like many of you are already right now? To the other side, could you list five things that the president's administration has done positively? And if you can't do either of those, my question is just simply, why? Why not? Think about religious authority wedded together with sinful people. I know many of you have scars from how this has played out at a local church level. But it's played out often at national denominational type levels too. Sometimes there are denominations who leave behind the gospel and then you have this shell of an institution hollowed out of theology and the gospel and and then there's this little local church that loves Jesus and doesn't know what to do and so they want to leave and go somewhere else and, and be a part of maybe a more healthy denomination or no denomination and but they don't own their building. And it gets ugly. Those cases have gone to the Supreme Court. Not like some religious Supreme Court, like the Supreme Court. 
I know a few of you have been a part of things like that in the past, and it's ugly. This here in Acts chapter 4 is ugly. Speaking of churches, in the fall I went on vacation one weekend, and uh, I get a text Sunday morning that says during first service, we had to bring in chairs. There were so many people here. And I was like, I, I thought, that's awesome. I texted back. I'm there with my family, friends, and we all talked about it. We made a joke, because Ben Bechtel was preaching, uh, about having the KOM, which is the king of the mountain. I'll have to back up to explain this. So on my phone, I have an app called Strava. It's like my favorite app. Uh, it tracks all of my fitness or not fitness um, at various times of the year. But um, So you have it, and when you run or when you ride a bike from A to B, it tracks these things called segments. And you and I can compete against each other even though we're never, we don't have to do it at the same time. Everybody who's ever done that segment using the app gets logged into this thing and the person at the top is called the king of the mountain. And so in the fall, uh, Bechtel and I started a joke that we would talk about church attendance and who has the king of the mountain. <laughs> Which is a joke, it's silly pastor's jokes, about who has the highest non-Easter Sunday attendance. And so Bechtel had the king of the mountain for a while. Well, last week, especially if you were here first service, uh, I'm sitting over on the side. I didn't have any responsibilities, really. Let's come here, be helpful. And uh, I'm sitting there with friends, and, uh, and ushers come down the aisle, like midway during the worship service, and they're looking around. I'm like, I don't know what they're looking at. So I look over, I'm like, what are you doing? They're like, we can't find seats for people in the back. And I was like, so I look around, I'm like, oh, wow, we're really full. And my oldest daughter looks over at me and goes, they must have known Bechtel was preaching. <laughs> Uh, well played, well played, sweetheart. <laughs> I can joke about that because it just makes me smile. I'm so happy. But I've told you there are other scenarios where there are pockets of jealousy within my heart that are ugly. And the same is true in yours. In the Garden of Eden, our hearts were designed to find our rest in God. There's this line in the, the Luke's gospel about um, during the, the parable of the prodigal son and you know the prodigal son he runs away spends everything and on kind of profligate living and degenerate life comes back asks for forgiveness father throws a party and and then the religious moral upright older brother which is probably many of us who do the right things um, he looks at this party and says you've never done this for me what, what does the father say all I have is yours. All I have is yours. Come in and celebrate. The son of mine was lost, but is found. You see, the invitation of this passage is to let go of the praise of man and be filled with the praise of God. It's going to require repentance. It's going to require faith. It's going to require changes on our part, but it is the good news to us in this, gospel, this, this passage. The Sadducees, God, God loved the Sadducees so much that he had this miracle done on display right in front of them. So they would be forced to wrestle with their own jealousy and what they're gonna hang on to, the praise of God or the praise of man. And here, it, the outlook looks bleak. I will tell you, if you stay at our church for a while and we make it to chapter six, verse seven, you'll read, many priests became Christians. The gospel is on the move.
then and I believe now. Would you join me in prayer as we invite the worship team back up for our closing song? Heavenly Father, that though, I, I'm so thankful that though the religious leaders were trying to evade the truth, as though they were asking about one thing, you were pleased to display before them the gospel, the good news of a crucified Savior, now risen, now ascended, and soon to return. Lord, we confess our own jealousies and insecurities and struggles this morning to you. And we ask that in their place, you would fill us with contentment in the gospel. That we would leave this church service as happy as I believe this man who was healed after 40 years doing jumping jacks to your praise and your glory, I pray that we would leave with that same healed gospel joy. We pray this in Christ's name.